sad and scary thing when someone who appeared to be a very committed Christian walks away from the faith. It can raise serious theological questions, right, for for those of us who believe that God sovereignly brings people to faith and that true salvation can never be lost. We wonder what this must mean in light of that truth. And Jude inevitably raises that issue because this letter, as we've said, is about perseverance in the faith. Jude, however, clearly relates the need for perseverance to God's sovereignty, right? We see it, his opening statements, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, God does something to us. He keeps us. Jude does exhort us, verse 21, to keep yourselves in the love of God, which highlights how we are active in persevering. But he closes, Jude closes with another emphasis on God's role. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So in between these considerations, his main purpose, Jude's main purpose was, verse 3, to appeal to us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He wanted Christians to be firm in what they are to believe and what they are to practice in light of belonging to Christ. The fact is that Christians of every age, every age, in every place, have needed this same exhortation. And it remains just as live of an issue now as it was 2,000 years ago. And so we are again today focusing on Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So the last, last time we were in Jude, right? Uh, we highlighted how Jude said that Jesus saved a people out of Egypt. And the point was that Christ has always been the Savior since the fall. It's a striking thing that Jesus, who was born, you know, in, in the first century AD, um, could be said to have been active for his people 1500 years before his birth. No one then comes to the Father except through Christ, which is true of all ages before and after his birth. God's true people have always had faith in the Savior, whether believing in the Savior who has come and died for our sins, as is the case for us, or believing in the Savior who would come and die for their sins, as the Old Testament saints. All right, so uh, I used the illustration last time. Just to kind of refresh our memories, if you, if you were, if you and I are looking at a statue, 
but you and I, but you are in the front of it and I am behind it, we're still doing the same thing, right? Looking at the statue, the same action, but just from different angles. And so too, Old Testament believers had faith in Christ just from a different perspective. One that looked forward when ours looks back. Reformed theology has called this doctrine, that God has one plan of salvation, and one way of salvation, which is in Christ, regardless of time and place, the covenant of grace. God's offer of salvation in Christ spans from when God promised the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent to Isaiah's prophecy that the virgin, the woman, would bear a child to when God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law for our redemption. And God's people, though, have always been just that. They have been a people. The covenant of grace is a community, which includes everyone who is in the church's fellowship. And Jude 5 raises this question of how the covenant community explains how God is sovereign and yet how some can fall away. Jude pointed out that Jesus saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. There is some sort of experience related to salvation, yet Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. So we're looking at another assumption in Jude's statement. Last time we saw that Christ is the substance of the covenant of grace, This time, we see that the administration of the covenant of grace has always included true believers and also at times those who do not have true faith. The main point that I want us to take away is that the church itself is a real blessing, but only true faith joins us to the Savior. The church is real. The church itself is a real blessing. But only faith joins us to the Savior. So we're going to come at this from a few different angles. Uh, the first, so the first point is a quick reminder. So I realize it's been a few weeks since we've thought about this whole issue. So I want to survey. Uh, some of the things we considered last time. So a quick reminder. And last time I explained uh, the covenant of grace with a distinction between the covenant's substance and its administration. Now, I illustrated this with a tri- uh, by, by talking about a trip to the ice cream shop. Um, the purpose, uh, and I like to talk about ice cream, so I'm going to bring it back up again. Uh, the purpose of your trip is ice cream. When you go to that shop, you want ice cream. That is what you are going to have when you leave. But you can get ice cream in a cup or in a cone. Ice cream always comes to you, but it comes to you in different packaging. Ice cream is the substance 
but the cup or the cone is the administration. The administration is the way that the substance is delivered to you. Now, just so you know that I'm not lazy and falling back on recycling things, I have another illustration for you to double down on the point. Uh, Another way to think about this is our phones. Okay, right, almost everyone here is going to have a mobile phone. And most of you will have some sort of cover on it. Right? The cover is not the phone, but it is the casing by which you hold your phone. You can change the cover. Right? So the same phone comes to you packaged in different ways. The phone is the substance, but the cover is the administration. So salvation by faith in Christ is the substance of the covenant of grace, God's one plan of salvation since the fall. But that substance has been delivered in various administrations. Cones and cups look very different, but administer the same substance. Phone covers look very different, but all contain the same phone. Just because the Old Testament administration focused on types and symbols, which taught about what Christ would do, just because they looked different from our administration, does not mean it did not contain the same substance of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ. After all, Abraham, the Old Testament believer, is the example of how we are justified by faith in the New Covenant era. And so our reminder here, I guess it's debatable whether that was quick, but this is a quick reminder. So our reminder is that the substance of the covenant is salvation in Christ. But that gospel has been delivered in multiple, very different-looking administrations. Jesus saved a people from Egypt around 1500 B.C. Jesus justified Abraham around 2100 B.C. And Jesus rescued sinners by faith in 2021 A.D. But we live in a covenant community. And so we're going to, we are in an administration. And so we want to think about our next point. So the next point is true participation. True participation. And so now we have to ask the question, how, how can Jude, how can Jude uh, say that Jesus saved a people, but then destroyed some people of that same group? If God is sovereign and salvation is everlasting, how can Jude say some people that Jesus saved were destroyed? And again, I think we have to postpone exploring exactly what Jude is trying to accomplish with his statement in the scope of this letter. And for now, we need to unpack one of his assumptions that is necessary. The point so that we can adequately get to what he's trying to accomplish the next time we consider this letter. So the the assumption in Jude 5 is that people can 
participate, people can participate in the administration of the covenant of grace without truly participating in the substance by genuine faith. Okay, in in other words, to, to sum this up, there can be unbelievers in the covenant community. Now, right, that's a dense thing. I've just, yeah. <laughs> Participation in the administration without truly partaking of the substance, that's a dense thing. Let's unpack, right? And let's circle back to our illustrations before connecting this to how it looks in the church. Right? If I, if I wanted you to believe that I have an iPhone, even if I really didn't, I could go and get one of those big covers that, that would encase the whole phone, and I could just walk around with that, displaying it. If I hold an empty cover to my ear with some skill, uh, maybe I would convince you that I'm using this iPhone. Uh, so in that case, I used the cover, the administration, right, without actually possessing a phone, the substance. I have the packaging, but I don't have what's supposed to be inside. I could walk around with an empty ice cream cup with a spoon sticking out, but never actually have any ice cream. I could ask the cup, the administration, but not the ice cream, the substance. No, we can, I think, I think we can push the illustration a little bit further. So, uh, I probably overthink the things I watch, but on tons of TV shows and movies, uh, if you, if you pay close attention, I'm about to ruin every movie and show for you. So I'm sorry, but it makes my point. A character will buy coffee. They will, they, the, the, the people working at the shop will hand them a paper cup and the actor will turn the cup all the way up and take a big drink right away. Now, if that was real, that cup would be way too full and that coffee would be way too hot for anyone to take that big of a drink. But here's the thing. So you know it's empty. That's where I... But they really do own the administration. They have the cup. The cup is not just a, a visual prop over there. They're actually using it. And they're using it as it's supposed to be used, carrying it and drinking from it. But it doesn't have the substance in it. Despite all appearances... And despite going through the motions of using the administration, they never partake of the substance. Now, how does that apply to life in the church? There are real, there are real external features of life in God's covenant community, and it is possible to take part in them without truly partaking of the substance. Okay, right, so Genesis 17, verses 10 and 11. Sorry, I probably should have put this on your sheet, but I didn't. So Genesis 17, 10 and 11. God said to Abraham, 
This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. We've emphasized that in past weeks, right, that Abraham was justified by faith alone. But still, God, God said, right, I'm not, I'm not doing anything tricky here. If you look at the verse, God said, the covenant is circumcision. The covenant is circumcision. As we see in Abraham's unbelieving son, Ishmael, it is possible to have the administration to take part in the covenant, but not have the substance by faith. Far from being an Old Testament relic, right, Luke in, in Luke 22:20, Jesus said, "This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Is the new covenant. True faith, and hear this. True faith is necessary to receive the substance of salvation in Christ. But the covenant community is formed around participating together in the things that we do as God's people. The things that God tells us to do, not just the things we decide to do, but the things that are appointed for us. The preached word, the sacraments, the fellowship of the saints. It is possible Right? It's possible to have an empty cup and pretend to be drinking coffee. It's possible to take part, actually participate in the external features of God's covenant community, but never partake of the substance. So we have to have true participation by actually partaking of the substance by faith. Now, I want to give you another biblical example of this for a couple of reasons, because I want to, uh, I want to reemphasize the point, but also I think that this helps us understand what is actually oftentimes considered a, dr- a tricky passage. So the next point is a biblical example. That's not the most creative title, but it tells you uh, what I'm about to do. So there's another biblical example, and it's Hebrews 6. So Hebrews 6 describes the exact situation. I think, understood rightly, Hebrews 6 describes exactly the situation that we're considering. Uh, Now, this passage is warnings. This is one of the classic warning passages. but I, the warnings have confused a lot of people, right? Armenians and Roman Catholics think that this passage teaches that we can really lose our salvation. Having truly been saved, you can lose it. Because they're, uh, on the other hand, right, to, to switch directions, because of their view of baptism is that someone must have the substance to have the administration 
Baptists, including those who believe in God's sovereignty for salvation, are forced to suggest this passage uh, is merely a hypothetical warning to prevent believers from falling away. Reformed theology, however, understands this passage is about participating in the administration, the features of the church life, but without having true faith. And this passage, it's there on your sheet. We've read it, um, Hebrews 6. So we're focusing on the first eight verses, really. Uh, this passage is about maturity for believers, much like in Jude. Okay. Now, here, here's, here's a key thing. Uh, in verse 2, so if you look at verse 2, Hebrews 6, the ESV says that one of the issues was instruction about washings. <laughs> The Greek word behind washing, I don't do this. I've appealed to, to the languages two other times since I've been your assistant minister, so I don't overdo this. I want to change this. The Greek word behind washings is baptismois. You already, you hear it even in just the Greek, right? From the Greek word baptismois, we get the word baptisms. Right, so the only reason, the only decisive reason that I can fathom to translate this other than baptisms is to avoid the implication that this passage is going to teach a reformed understanding of the church, which would totally undermine the Baptist view. So this passage starts in the context of misunderstandings about baptisms, which as another uh, item from this list, often included in the ancient church, laying on of hands. So, context. Uh, And then we get to verses 4 and 5, which list the benefits of church life. Okay. Now, in the ancient church, the first one listed there is being enlightened, having once been enlightened. In the ancient church... Being enlightened was one way to refer to baptism. Okay? Justin Martyr, who was one of the very first Christian writers, argued, now this washing of baptism is called enlightenment, since those who learn these things are the ones being enlightened in understanding. So when when you wrap your mind around the things that are taught in baptism, you're enlightened. Baptism symbolizes our renewal, and Hebrews has just explicitly referred to baptisms. People in the covenant then, Hebrews continues, taste the heavenly gift. And tasting has an obvious suggestion for the Lord's Supper. The Spirit is at work in the church, preaching of the Word goes out to all who are present to hear. And these things are the means that God uses to manifest the power of the age to come. It is manifested. And people do understand what it is, even if they don't take hold of it by faith. Verse 6 tells us that someone can take part in all these things 
and still fall away because they made full use of the administration but never partook of the substance by true faith. Right now, now the illustration in verse 7 and 8 is key. Right? It proves the point that I'm trying to make. And it starts, right? He starts his illustration for. And what do I go on and on about with you? What should for be translated? Because. Right? So he's giving us the illustration is the reason for everything he's just said. Because the same rain falls on the land generally, but produces... Think about that. The things that he's just talked about are the rain. And these things fall on the land and produce good and bad crops. Fruit, but also thorns. Right, so at this point we see that it's going to be very far-fetched to say that having once been enlightened means true conversion. Right, because being... Being truly converted does not produce bad crops. We might still produce some rubbish, but that is despite, not because of, our conversion. I hope, I trust you get what I mean there. This, this enlightening then has to be an objective feature of church life that God uses to have some effect on us. Namely, I think it is baptism. So God's blessings in church life. Hearing the word, receiving even both sacraments, if someone has managed to make a credible profession of faith, despite not truly believing. Fellowship with the saints. These are all genuine blessings. These things themselves... The things we do as the church are God's real gifts to us. For some, these blessings sprout into genuine faith and grow into further godliness. For others, continual use of those gifts the external administration eventually reveals the true colors of unbelief and ungodliness as those thorns sprout. They never partook, truly, of the substance, salvation by faith in Christ. As First John 2.19 says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. And so we see the Scripture fairly plainly, I think, with thoughtful reading, teaches that we can participate in the administration of the covenant without truly partaking of the substance by genuine faith. Okay, what do we do with this? Last last point. What do we do with this? I think I think we need to note, right, that um 
every single one of us right now, in this moment, what we are doing is participating in the administration to some degree or other. Right? As, as the word is preached right now, God's reign falls on you. And the question is, are you receiving that merely as administration or are you partaking of the substance? Is the reign of God's word, God's blessing right now, is it growing fruitful crops or thorns and thistles in you? We cannot hold the slipperiness of ice cream in our bare hands without an administration. It doesn't work. So too, we cannot grasp the white-hot glory of the gospel without a handle, and so God gives his gospel to us in clay pots, preachers who have only words, water, and wine to convey God's promises to you. Are you grasping the handle? Is the rain falling on you, but just preparing you to bear thistles of unbelief and ungodliness in your soul? Or as you hear God's word go forth right now, are you grasping the substance, Jesus Christ, by the hand of faith? Are you drinking from an empty cup or are you guzzling the nectar of the gospel? And the main payoff here is that we can neither presume upon our involvement in the church nor neglect it. Participating in this administration will not save you. You cannot think that just being here and liking it is enough. You have, you must grab the substance. Christ himself by faith. Jude said, even among the saved, Jude destroyed those who did not believe. Faith is the key factor. Do you have it? And on the other hand, we all must cherish our participation in this administration. It is real. God's promises are delivered in clay pots. And yet the pots deliver the promises. We cannot conceive of biblical faith as if it exists separately from the administration. So we must be in the church. And this is why our catechism speaks of Christ 
as he is offered to us in the gospel. You cannot take hold of Christ apart from how he is offered to you in the gospel. And this is why Christ gave the power of the keys to bind on heaven, in heaven and on earth. He gave that to the church. The church is real. And this is our place of blessing. God, God is present in the activities that we are doing right now. When we are gathered, two or three are gathered in the name of Christ. He is present. That's not for you by yourself. That's when the church, under the name of Christ, is here. And Jesus is here with us. God's blessing is not dependent upon our dynamic experience. Or we might be thankful even in this moment, it's not dependent on the quality of our preaching. But we engage with the means of grace that God has appointed for us to use. And it is dependent on that. When we are here, God truly distributes his gifts to us. And preeminently, he gives us Christ, our blessed Lord, who rescues us from destruction and puts us in a community of blessing. Let's pray. Father God, we realize right now that, that we exist, we are living here in this moment in the administration of your covenant. That your reign is falling on us right now. And you are the sovereign God who brings to faith and who keeps us for Jesus Christ. And we pray that in this moment, you use this rain to bring forth fruitful crops. That no one leaves this room not believing in the Lord Jesus. We ask that this is the moment of salvation. When each of us, for the first time or the millionth time, Take hold of the substance, Jesus Christ, by faith. Strengthen faith for those who have it. Grant faith to those who need it. Build us up as your people regardless. Send us into the world as those marked by believing in Christ 
those who are called Christians. There are many things before in the week ahead. But we know that this is the place where we meet and encounter our God. Whatever works you have prepared in advance for us to do, we pray that we are excited and eager, not just for this moment at hand, but for when we will be here again together in merely a week. We pray these things in the precious name of Christ. Amen.